This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are discussing the crisis in Ukraine, uh, what looks like uh, the terrible possibility of war uh, from a Russian invasion of Ukraine, or at the very least, more violence and threatening uh, challenges surrounding this country. Uh, Ukraine is a country, of course, that has received extensive uh, American aid since the end of the Cold War. It has been a close ally of the United States, and it is a country that has uh, sought membership in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and various other Western institutions. Uh, We confront today, as many uh, of our listeners know, uh, the challenge of uh, maintaining and continuing to pursue democracy in Ukraine with threatening countries, uh, particularly Russia, around it. Uh, We're joined by uh, a journalist who is covering these events uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, She's one of the foremost uh, Ukrainian journalists known uh, to the United States and other communities. Uh, This is Natalia Gumenyuk. Uh, She's a Ukrainian author, documentary filmmaker, and journalist. Uh, She's joined our podcast before. She specializes in conflict reporting, human rights, and foreign affairs. She's the founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab, aimed at popularizing public journalism and overcoming polarization. And she's been reporting on events uh, from Ukraine for uh, various news outlets, uh, National Public Radio uh, and others. And we're, we're fortunate to have her with us today. Uh, Natalia, thank you for joining us. Uh, good to talk to you. Before we turn to our discussion with Natalia, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what's the title of your poem for this podcast? When the War Starts. Let's hear it. When the war starts. Maybe you are standing in a cupboard. Maybe you are walking in the square under the lindens, trying to make sense of the silence. Nowadays, it has become disturbing, conspicuous. It is sunny, of course, as it always is, and almost it is any other day. Maybe you are standing in a cupboard reaching for a jar of pickles. Maybe you are standing on a street corner looking up at a lamppost. Maybe you are holding her hand and staring into her eyes longingly as the train pulls away and follows its own gaze into the mountainside. The train whistles, as it always does, and maybe it reminds you of a proverb. You don't wish to be caught repeating such droll indecencies now, not on a day like this. Maybe, when you at last hear sirens wailing in the boulevard, or bombs flying in between the rafters of the apartment block across the square, It is dark already. Maybe when you will have understood what it means to be hungry, when you will have wandered silent, ruined streets following breadcrumbs, night has already fallen. Maybe it is dark already, but more likely it is bright, simply bright, and you must stare at the fires across the way and breathe in the smoke of a human being. You look out over the square into the eyes of your neighbor as she collapses at two-four time into non-existence. When the war starts, maybe you are reaching for the ketchup in the walk-in pantry. Maybe you are kicking stones along the avenue in the mid-morning sun. Maybe you are looking up or looking down or looking backwards over your shoulder into the eyes of the man you must kill, who must kill you 16 months later. Forget that you were here. When? 
if you tell your grandchildren you already knew that it had started. Yes, you were waiting at the window. Yes, you looked her in the eye. Yes, you knew already that there was simply nothing to be done. It's very moving, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the ways in which, when we least expect it, uh, we can be thrust into war, violence. And it's really about uh, trying to uh, remain vigilant against that, but also how deeply devastating war can be and how vital it is that we do everything we can to prevent it. It's really important to remember that point. Uh, Natalia, the events in Ukraine the last uh, few months and the events around Ukraine seem almost like a a slow, inevitable descent into war. Is is that what it feels like on the ground there? Mm, I would say it doesn't feel really like that. I think there are a couple of clarifications to be made. It's true that Ukraine is at war with Russia for the last years and uh, Russia is in control of uh, part of the Ukrainian territory in Crimea and in the eastern part of the country. Uh, However, what we have today, it's not really the crisis in Ukraine. Honestly, saying there is nothing happening in Ukraine for the last couple of months, apart from, you know, like anxiety, which we have, or the preparation of the military or people to be on alert. What we experience today um, is the threat uh, to Ukraine. However, the problem is at this moment uh, between more or less Russia and the West, uh, because the demand of uh, Kremlin today, they do not really want anything from Ukraine. From what they uh, say, uh, it's not really about, uh, even like Ukraine as a country, it's about the spheres of influence. It's more or less about the returning to the uh, history uh, like it was before the Soviet Union had collapsed. And that makes this situation quite weird because I fall, I'm following the con, I'm covering a lot of international conflicts. I'm covering the conflict in Ukraine. So I do quite well. What is the war on the ground? Like the very classical, what people imagine uh, in how they see it in the news or in the movies. Uh, but now we really have the thing that it, the story is about Ukraine. The threat is to Ukraine, but it's done in this direction because that's what Russia can. Since Ukraine is not a NATO member and there is no any alliance, there is no any obligation of any country to support Ukraine in possible battle with Russia, which is, of course, an international uh, military uh, global superpower. Uh, it's Ukraine which will, unfortunately, may, might slide into the war if there won't be success in these negotiations. But the problem is it's very hard to find what this success could be. That, that's so insightful. And it, it's it's important for our listeners to understand that, as you say, the, the primary demands from uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, have been demands upon the United States and NATO, demands to make a pledge uh, never to allow Ukraine into NATO, and various other demands he's made. They generally are not demands on Ukraine at this moment. W- what does that feel like for citizens of Ukraine to, in a sense, be pawns in this chessboard, as you put it, of great power conflict over spheres of influence, a very historical phenomenon. Of course, Ukraine has been in this position before. So do Ukrainian citizens recognize that? And and do they see this as part of 
that long history or something new? I think it, it's totally new because uh, I'm, you know, from this school of thought of journalists who think that people matters, the human security uh, is paramount, and in a lot of situation of conflict, there is always the room of maneuver. There is always something which depends on us. You know, maybe you can de-escalate, or you know, there would be some political solution. But this is a and quite um, often. Um, it was the case. We are in a long process of the conflict resolution with Russia for eight years. And uh, interesting enough, also worthy to mention that the couple, for a couple of years, the Ukrainian government was really pushing the policy uh, towards de-escalation, towards you know, different kind of the political solutions and negotiations. So um, I was always insisting that there is a lot Ukraine can do, yet unfortunately not in this stage. And uh, yes, people do feel about that. Uh, it partially makes people a bit par- paralyzed about the actions because it's not very much you can do in this situation. Of course, there are obvious things which I still think probably say that Ukrainian diplomats are there, they are talking to the governments, they are looking into different ways how the uh, Western alliances can help Ukraine, whether there would be a military support, weaponry, or you know financial support, or just unity, or enforcing the sanctions to, uh, towards Russia. Uh, there is, of course... Uh, the clear things which the Ukrainian army should do, you know, be on alert, be prepared uh, to uh, look at different scenarios. But there is quite few things what really Ukrainians can do. You know, like there is no will of this war, neither in the largest society nor among the political class. So there is no need, for instance, for the journalists to write somewhere like stop the war. Nobody wants the war here. Uh, There is, um, and but at the same time, I won't be really, let's say, using this term of being a pawn on the global chessboard. Because in the end, we should admit that some countries are bigger, some countries are more, smaller, some countries are capable to defend itself. And Ukraine is partially capable to defend itself, and that's what Ukraine is, going, is probably will do in case of the invasion. However, there are some disproportional uh, threat because it's true that some countries are that big that's that's why therefore the international alliance are created and being now in position when Ukraine is not the part of NATO uh, it's very hard what Ukraine really can do so it doesn't feel like you know oh the best t- be- betrayed Ukraine but there is a paradox of the situation that Ukraine could be protected if it is a part of any international alliance. But that's exactly which makes uh, the, the fact that it's not there gives the Russia the opportunity to do that, a capability uh, to risk. Uh, but at the same time, um, of course, we understand that uh, there is no easy logical uh, logical way out because the, 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 the demands of Moscow are just against the international security, international order, uh, the idea of the free will of the people. So, for instance, how Ukraine can influence the idea um, uh, of, on how the NATO should be built. Russia demands that, uh, you know, the, the voice of the people don't matter. But this is such an absurd demand that you really feel a bit paralyzed with it. 
Right, right. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, it, it would be unprecedented for an alliance like NATO to give Russia a veto over who joins the alliance. Uh, the, the alliance might decide one way or another on whether a country like uh, Ukraine or Georgia should be in the alliance, but certainly to give Russia a veto uh, would, would undermine the, alliance, the very existence of the alliance. The other paradox, of course, is Putin's uh, aggressive behavior and his threats uh, make it all the more important, obviously, for Ukrainians to have NATO support. How do you think Ukrainians um, would react to continued Russian aggression and, and a Russian invasion? Vladimir Putin claims that there is support for him in Ukraine. Is that true? Um, that's not really the case. Um, I think that the best phrase to really describe the situation on the ground is really this keep calm and carry on. Uh, it's uh, psychologically, for instance, you know, imagine, you know, you just live your life and nothing really happening, but there are these all threats and demands, you know, everywhere. But of course, it's not just threats. There is the uh, 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. It's the fact that confirmed with a satellite with the intelligence uh, so it's not a bluff uh, but a real threat at the same time because it's let's say I'll, I'd use this word theoretical there is very little you can do so people just pursue and you know they it's there is anxiety but the only way is like just to go on um, but at the same time, uh, of course, as a journalist, we follow up with the army, we follow up with the politicians. We know that, you know, they're not on holidays, they are on alert, they are looking at different, you know, options. At the same time, the moral is quite high. Uh, there is no doubt that Ukrainians would resist, of course, not the whole country, but, you know, people would do what is expected from them to do. So even, you know, I would say, like, even in case Russia... Um, uh, invade uh, to the different parts of the Ukrainian territory, it's very hard to imagine how they would control the territory, for what they need this territory. You know, they can't afford just to uh, create incredible damage to the country, to the economy of the country, to the infrastructure. They are capable of that, but really to invade and expect that uh, you know, what people would support, that's totally unrealistic. Um, so in the end, I I use also this this term of like doomed optimism we have that I mean, it, it could be very difficult and challenging, but uh, there is no like even little doubt that you know, like, that Ukrainians won't fight to defend itself or that you know people would embrace any kind of invasion. Paradoxically, of course, there is you know, growing support towards uh, Ukrainian memberships in NATO and growing alienation towards uh, Russia, in, in even if the people who were, uh, you know, moderate. Like just saying that, I should again say that still people quite unwilling to, to, to the conflict happen. There are no drums of war in Kiev or elsewhere. What has been the reaction of the Ukrainian government, and and has it been viewed uh, positively on the ground? Uh, it's different uh, the reaction to the government. Um, at this point, I think I would can afford to express my opinion. I should give credit for the government uh, to stay, let's say, calm, 
and show restraint, which is very hard, I guess. You know, in the in the situation like that, even with the political motives, it would be very easy to you know to tune in this war mood, it, it, just like that. However, uh, the president and the government they really want to avoid the panic. Uh, oddly enough, I mean, for good or for the best, but to my opinion, it's uh, for better. They are not really, you know, like this. They, they're trying to, you know, explain uh, to demonstrate this calmness in in response to to reassure that the government is in control, uh, but uh, they really, you know, not not really rushing. I know for sure that the major effort is to, you know, uh, get the possible support. Uh, from the Western alliance. But I would explain also the, the thing that from the way how the Kremlin usually acts, they really try to provoke. They really try to, you know, create this casus belly for war, you know, do something and then um, accuse another side of uh, being the ones who started. Uh, and already in this situation, there were quite a few situations when uh, Ukraine could be this, you know, hot-headed, side which started something and that's already explanation in the uh, Russian propagandistic or the Russian state media uh, but it's not exact it's the opposite to what's going on on the ground so the population is different I know some of the uh, people are like complaining like oh why I don't know like we are that calm why there is not anywhere like the emergency mode but I think it's also done in order to de-escalate because it would be very difficult to understand then, you know, like what is the, I mean, for us to be clear, what is the cause? But it's quite important not to, you know, bring that chaos. Uh, so we do have more or less a calmer situation in the, let's say, Ukrainian media rather than even in the international media uh, regarding the conflict. Uh, but as I just explained, I mean, there are other reasons for that. And it's important for people to understand that Russia is has claimed that Ukraine is acting in ag aggressively toward it, and so uh, as Natalia described, uh, there's a concern that Russia will use what use an excuse, use what appears to be an act of Ukraine or another country to justify invading. Uh, what do Ukrainians think about Western and American policy in response to uh, Putin? What what would they like to see? I think that the, 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 the idea is that it's a bit too late. So indeed, uh, Ukrainian army is uh, under the reform process for the last years. It's developed very well, but still it's uh, you know far away from perfect. Uh, there are years necessary in order to improve the situation. And as well... Uh, I mean, if the, the troops are quite strong, uh, but the Navy or air defense is quite weak and that's not something to fix. So there is quite a clear list of uh, equipment, military equipment, uh, which is demanded from drones to different kind of defense system. But I should insist that uh, it's about the defense. Uh, I myself, I mean, I'm a journalist, so I'm not really like expressing strong opinions. Uh, but I'm the one who is not really, it was not really a big supporter of, you know, like sorting out the uh 
annexation of Crimea or uh, reconquering Donbass with a military force. So I was quite quite uh, had a, quite a strong opinion on that that we won't solve the conflict in the eastern Ukraine with more weapon because it's not there. Yet now the situation is different. We're speaking about the threat of the different scale of the invasion from a foreign country, where probably some some kind of very uh, clear types of weaponry could be um, could be used. Also, um, but at the same time, as we just discussed this paradox of NATO, uh, this idea that Ukrainian, um, that, that things can't be decided with the participation of Ukraine, I think it's, it, it partially frustrates some of the people uh, why I'm speaking too late? Because, of course, any support right now could be used, uh, could be accused by Russia as a kind of a provocation. So, I mean, it could be given away earlier. The second problem is, uh, I don't want to make it too complicated, but we're speaking about the Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline, which is uh, built uh, to sell the gas uh, in Germany. And, of course, in this situation for Ukrainians, it's quite difficult to understand how at all we can build something like that in current context, uh, because there are a lot of announcements that, oh, it would be blocked if it would be used as a weapon, but it's already used as a weapon. So some of the Ukrainians are probably would like to have stronger support, because the weakness uh, is something which, in fact, provokes the Kremlin. Um, the especially the usually the Kremlin describes um, uh, in their publications uh, that you know the West won't support Ukraine. So as long as when the West demonstrate either lack of unity or lack of strength, that's something which kind of makes Russia stronger. Uh, so there is this uh, feeling that it could be more. Uh, in the end. As we started the program, as we started the podcast, the story at this moment isn't really about Ukraine, but in the end, in the worst case scenario, that would be Ukrainians who would need to fight and who would be under the uh, critical risk. Right. So our, our final question, Natalia, uh, relates to a number of things you said in, in your really interesting answer uh, just now. Uh, Ukraine has been dealing, of course, with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and Crimea in particular since uh, 2014 and continued support for an insurgency in the Donbass that you mentioned before the eastern part of Ukraine. So in, in a sense, Ukraine has been at war with Russia, a low scale war since 2014. What does that long experience of conflict with Russia uh, and the current concerns about war, what does that do to Ukrainian democracy? Uh, yours is a country that is uh, developing uh, democratic institutions. It's been difficult. You've written about this. Uh, we have our own difficulties in the United States, of course. Uh, what, do, what do these events mean for the future of Ukrainian democracy? So the problem that there is one demand Russia wants from Ukraine in this case, not to be a democracy. And that's not what Ukrainians want to agree. That's what is really on the table. Uh, you know, uh, regaining its sphere of influence for Russia means that 
uh, neither Ukraine nor other is a post-Soviet or even you know uh, Eastern European countries uh, won't be democracies any longer if Russia uh, you know succeeds. So that is what is on uh, on the table. That's it, what is at heart of this conflict. Uh, I still would insist that any war is, of course, uh, is toxic for the societies and for the democracy in the society. It creates the pretext, uh, you know, for uh, different um, government policies or taboos in the society. So it can't, you know, the war can't be helpful to the society or to the country. Uh, but I still do not see any other way uh, that uh, Ukraine would, you know, give up and would say like, okay, we agree, we, we, we don't want to be democracy, so please invade us. Or like, okay, we agree that we, we would like to have an authoritarian government and then if, if it's calmed down the Russia, we would do that. We see that it sounds even silly when I pronounce that. So indeed, in the long run, uh, the um, it's not just about democracy in Ukraine, it's about the whole idea whether the country which decided to be democratic, uh, a former you know, post-Soviet country, whether it's allowed by Russia to be uh, democratic. And that's definitely not something uh, we want to have in the 21st century. Right. The basis for sovereignty and self-determination is for the people to decide, which is at the core of democracy. Zachary, uh, this has been in the news, this topic, of course, but there's a lot going on in the world today, uh, especially covid and uh, debates over voting rights in the United States, various, various changes uh, and various controversies. Uh, do you think this is a topic that young people are uh, interested in in the United States and something that will motivate young people like yourself going forward? I, I think so to a limited extent, because I think part of the problem is that the way this conflict is being discussed in the United States is one of great power conflict and, and 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 almost on Cold War terms. And I think part of the problem is that in that language, that rhetoric, we're losing sight of the people who will actually suffer on the ground uh, if, if an invasion were to occur. So I do think people are engaged in the sort of um, high stakes uh, diplomatic and public controversies that are ongoing at the moment. But I think there's less attention and not enough attention being paid to the actual consequences on the ground. Right. And the complexity of American and Western responses Indeed. to this. To this, Well, Natalia, thank you for uh, providing us an on-the-ground perspective and giving us insights, as Zachary said, to the experience of human beings on the ground and reminding us how important uh, how important this conflict and the future of Ukraine is to the future of democracy uh, in Europe uh, and beyond. There are not easy answers for U.S. policy, but I think you've given us uh, a much better accounting of how we should think about uh, the situation and how we should carefully plan for uh, future weeks and months of, of potential conflict, even, even warfare. Uh, thank you so much, Natalia. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Zachary, for your poem and your insights, of course, as well. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for yet another week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio. 
and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.